0: Hey, you're going to have an opportunity to score the hottest ticket in town. We have Suns playoff tickets. If you'd like to get registered, just text the word TICKET to 411923 to get registered. Um, listen for your name starting Wednesday during the 7 a.m., the 11 a.m., and the 4 p.m. hours. If we call your name, you'll have a chance to get registered to win those tickets. Once again, text the word TICKET to 411923. All right. right. Um an interesting conversation. It, 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 I, my favorite word, I believe, is dichotomy because I think everything is. Um, it's a pretty thin slice of ham that doesn't have two sides is um, what I was always told. When it comes to violence, we have seen an uptick of 10 percent in many cities since 2021, an uptick in murders by 10 percent. And now we have a big push on by this administration and like-minded people in the administration to uh, lessen people's access to firearms. It never stops the criminals, and that's the big issue. I think if we could have a reasonable conversation, that's the conversation. But I want you to hear, and I've maintained this. I don't mean this as an insult. It's an observation because when I use the word ignorance, I don't mean stupid. I mean they just don't know. Um, I believe largely the, the people that are in favor of gun control, when it comes to all kinds of issues, people may not understand someone else's position. But when it comes specifically to gun control, there is a huge number of the gun control advocates that are ignorant on the gun issue. What I mean by that is they don't know what it takes to get a gun. They've only heard it from someone else. They keep hearing about loopholes, and they hear about this, and they hear about that, but they really have no understanding of it. Um, here's a headline from NPR: One way to prevent suicides: limit access to guns. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. If we limited access to gun access to guns, we could prevent suicides. We all know that's a ridiculous headline. Right. I mean, the idea that if there is someone and I'm not making light of suicide, I think suicide is horrible for the survivors. It is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Anybody that is in the depths of despair, that contemplating the taking of their own life um, is is a a desperate place to be that I hope nobody I would pray for anyone who is in that situation. Sincerely, I I don't I've never been in a situation where I have been and I've been very sad in my life at times. I've never been to that dark place, and I pray that I never am, nor is anybody that I love. Um, I know what suicide does to people. I've been close to people that have committed suicide. Uh, the loss and the anger combined that you feel, I, I understand. The topic itself is not what I'm talking about here. The idea that you can prevent them by limiting access to firearms is absurd. Someone, and we all know someone, I know someone, who is... Has struggled with being suicidal, and they will find a way, which is what makes it as scary as it is. It is not; it's not the mechanism that they use. So, this is one of the headlines I'm talking about: the ignorance here. Um, uh, the people at uh, at uh, CNN, um, multiple weapons. CNN appears to mistake imitation firearms for AK-47. So they were talking about Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard. And when they went into his room, um, they found firearms in his room. But when you look, they've got the big orange ends on them like fake firearms. It is a telltale sign, and it's the reason why they have that cap on the end of the firearm. The issue for me is the ignorance. We have murders jumping 10 percent between 2021 and now, and I think a lot of that has to do with the policies of prosecution and the revolving door justice system that we have. But what what enrages me about this is the idea that we're not nearly as safe as we were before – and limiting access to firearms for innocent people, there are those out there that believe that that's going to lessen the chance that those innocent people are going to be victimized. And that's just not the case. It just isn't. You know, we keep hearing about gun shows and the gun show loopholes. And I will tell you, um, the number of ATF agents at a gun show is staggering if we probably if we knew the real statistics on what happens the idea that – when I've talked about the gun laws that we've had um, in one year, there were over 8 million um, applications for firearms and background checks for firearms. And of that, there were 112,000 denials, 112,000 denials for firearms in one year. Of those 112,000 denials, only 12,000 of them were ever investigated. And of them, only 12 cases – 12 – Out of 112,000, only 12 were ever pursued. Those are the kinds of things that are frustrating to people. When you talk about people that lie on applications, there's a difference between people that know they're not entitled to have firearms but try anyway. And people that lie on paperwork for a firearm and when they get caught. An extremely low level of prosecution. And this, for me, is the biggest issue. When I talk about this topic, it, 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 is, it is about the Second Amendment. There's no doubt. I mean, there's a, there's a defense here of talking about the Second Amendment. But the problem for me is more about the belief, your belief, that limiting access by law-abiding citizens is going to stop criminals. Because if you limit access to me, what you're saying is now the criminals can't get them legally either. Well, the criminals are going to find another way like they always do. And if they don't find access to firearms, they're going to find access to something else. We should be dealing with the root problem of criminality. We should be dealing with crime and punishment. We should be dealing with people before they become criminals. We should be talking about addiction. We should be talking about mentorship, as dumb as that may sound to some. The idea of, an, of a young man, especially because it's mostly young men that commit these crimes – of a young man that may be in a fatherless home or a young man that's going to be influenced somewhere instead of being influenced by the streets, that there's adult male role models out there that can influence these people down the right road. All of these things are viable concerns and viable ways of trying to head things off before they become damaging. But when somebody becomes criminalized and they become desensitized to hurting other people um, criminally and physically... Then you've got the issue, and now you want to take away everybody's access to firearms as if that's going to solve those other underlying problems. It hasn't in other countries. We don't have these mass shootings and murder rates. Yes, you do have the murder rates. You have murder rates. You have rape rates. You have violent crime rates that are through the roof. They just may not be with guns because those people don't have access to guns. It it, it doesn't make any sense to me. But the ignorance – And I mean this. If you're someone that's anti-gun, I don't know that having more of an education is going to change your mind. Matter of fact, I would think for a lot of you it would not. But don't you think that you need to know that in order to have a viable argument against something, you should know what you're against and why? Go look through the process. Go and take a real, as much as you can, unbiased look at the process of legally owning firearms and the vast majority of us that do before you start telling us what we need to do to change things. You're coming from a place that you don't know and you should at least understand. What we're going to do coming up in a moment is uh, we're going to talk about the Peoria School District. Is there a fight that is still going on that we should be fighting about or are there bigger fish to fry? Yes, we're going to talk about the restroom issues. We're going to do that coming up here in just a moment. Hey, thanks for being here. appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, The issue continues, and it's funny how it, it depends on what side of the issue you're on, and it's kind of the culture war in schools. And the reason why this has become a passionate issue is because it involves people's children. If you're a parent and you have a child that is transgender, you're going to be very protective of your child. If you have a child that isn't transgender, you have that in common with other parents, meaning you're going to protect your child. The city of Peoria, I shouldn't say city, the Peoria school board voted to allow transgender students to use their preferred restrooms. I want you to hear just a little bit. This is a kid named Sebastian who was a transgender student.
1: I've come to advocate for myself. I'm a trans man, so I would like to use a men's restroom. I live in the choir world, and the culture is unbelievably accepting. And it's just a really great space to be in. But that stops when I walk outside this choir room, doors. All right,
0: so this is where the problem lies, because where I grew up and how I grew up, and I think many of you grew up, uh, respect is a two-way street. And this, we are talking about comfort here. We are talking about comfort. Um... Meaning, uh, and I'm not minimizing Sebastian's opinion. I am validating it, but the opposite is also true. And this is where school districts have to start talking about this and other issues, which is this. Sebastian has a right to feel safe, but so do biological girls that don't want boys in the in the girls restroom or vice versa. But especially, you know, and maybe I'm being sexist here, but when you think about having young girls, the body issues that girls have and all these other things that go on, do they want to change in front of biological boys? No, they don't. Should they be called bigots for that? Should they be told they have to change the way they feel for that? No, they shouldn't. No, they shouldn't, nor should their parents. You don't want to watch a boy undress in front of you. You don't want to undress in front of a boy. And if that person identifies as a girl and they don't like being told they're a boy, then at some point you've got to say, but that's just the facts of life. It is fascinating to me how this culture we have somehow in its convoluted way believes it's being logical when it isn't. If I come into this building if, and and I'm not being – Um, I'm not I'm not joking. If I walked into this building six months from now and I was dressed as a woman and I said my name from now on is Michelle and that I am a woman. And if you don't treat me as and address me as such, you're a bigot. You're a sexist. And I'm going to go. I'm going to sue this company I work for because they're not treating me as I am identifying. Um, I would win a lawsuit. I would win at least a settlement if I didn't get it wouldn't go to court. I'd win a settlement. Everybody around here would be directed to address me as a female. If I walked in here, even on Halloween, and I stereotype a race. If I were to if I if there was a picture of me out there Even when I was, which does not exist, I want to make sure you understand that, even if I was in my early 20s or my late teens and I was at a party in blackface, that's cultural appropriation. It's insensitive and they would want me fired. If on Cinco de Mayo I wore a serape and a sombrero… You would say that I was mocking a race and it was cultural appropriation. If I said, no, 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 wait a minute. My best friend growing up in high school, his parents both were from Mexico, which is absolutely true. I have a ton of friends that are from Mexico that speak the Mexican dialect of Spanish. I was with a Cuban girl, which is a whole different kind of dialect of Spanish. I dated a girl from Puerto Rico that spoke another dialect of Spanish. But I said, you know what? I have been, I have been identifying with the Hispanic culture for decades So I'm Hispanic now. So I if I want to uh, stereotype in that way, it's because it's part of my heritage. You would say it's cultural appropriation and you would laugh me out of the building. As a matter of fact, I would be seen as the problem for stealing a culture. We name biological males the women of the year during the celebration of Women's Month or Women's Week. They interview trans people all the time. And here's a situation where teenage girls, at at that time in their life where they are the most sensitive about their body issues and who sees them and what's going on, we are now saying in Peoria that we are going to cater to the very small number of students. There has got to be an equal opportunity here. When you have someone that is dealing with any kind of an issue, at some point they have to understand. And we all do this. I mean, it's not just this issue. I I, I know this is going to be a dumb analogy, the peanut allergy issue, which is a serious one. There are sometimes it's deadly to have a peanut allergy. When you have parents whose child has a peanut allergy, they will ask the school, can you be sensitive to this? Because my child could become deathly ill if they're So they do that with the class and everybody else. But the parents are also made to understand that your child has to protect their self, that they have to make sure they're being diligent. There is some understanding that they have a sense of responsibility too. Not in this case it is absolutely absurd that you are going to upset the apple cart for the vast majority of students who are uncomfortable with this in order and then you say well what's the big deal you're making it a big deal you're the one that want to make up and change the societal norms of society that have been going on for thousands of years with some kind of nonsense that doesn't make sense I and I support someone living however they want to live I know trans people I support their uh, live the way you want to live forcing everybody else to say we're going to change everything we do so that you can be comfortable we are going to make the vast majority uncomfortable so that you can be comfortable doesn't make sense that's why this battle rages on and I'm not a bigot and I don't care what anybody calls me I'm not a bigot I'm not a homophobe I'm not a transphobe I'm none of those things but I am a realist KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And hey, like the song says, what a difference a day makes. Uh, joining us in studio, uh, the the ragged
1: uh, <laughs> Ron Wolfley. <laughs> in more ways than one, did you bro. get any sleep? Yeah, I did. As a matter of fact, I got some sleep, some good sleep, actually, ready to go. So overall, before we get specifically to the Cardinals, when you look at this draft, big surprises to you? <sighs> Uh, yeah, I would say overall what the Houston Texans did. I absolutely love what the Texans did. It was fantastic. And the Arizona Cardinals are right in the middle of what the Houston Texans did, of course, with their second pick overall, going with a quarterback, taking C.J. Stroud right there, and then being able to manipulate draft moves and get the number three pick from the Arizona Cardinals. And all of a sudden you take Will Anderson, a guy that I love. You know that, Berlin. Yeah, we talked about this. I I love Will Anderson, the edge player from Alabama, what an incredible talent he is. So they basically got their franchise quarterback, what they hope to be their franchise quarterback, that they'll build around for a decade. But we'll see if that shakes out that way. They got their franchise quarterback and they actually got a franchise defensive player, I think, in Will Anderson. We'll see. You gotta go prove it. The NFL's a meritocracy. So, we'll see.
0: But but looking from the... uh, At the very basic of it, it, you think this was a stupendous job.
1: Um, You never know for sure, but... You you never know. You know me, bro. I I don't get too fired up about rookies. I'm sorry right now. I know. I get it. I I I don't care who you are. Even Will Anderson, the guy that I like more than anybody else in the draft. You know what, Will? I'm looking at you. Prove it. Yeah. Okay? Because I've seen way too many rookies that came in They were going to change everything. Bro, they were going to change the fortunes of the organization, and there was just one problem they couldn't play. (laughs) Other than that. Yeah, other than that, what's the big deal? I can't tell you. So, anyways. I want to talk about the
0: choice of Paris Johnson Jr. I want to talk about the player in a moment, but I want to talk about how the Cardinals got there. What does this say to you about the new regime of the Arizona
1: Cardinals? I I have to tell you, I was really, really encouraged. You know, a first-time GM, and the news came. Down right before the draft, that the Arizona Cardinals were being penalized by the league. They were swapping picks. Now, they weren't losing picks, but they were swapping their third round pick, a high uh, third round pick, number 66, for number 96. They were swapping that with the Philadelphia Eagles because there was an impermissible phone call yeah. before. Can you imagine that? Here's money. Austin Ford, his first draft, and that's the first bit of news that comes down prior to the draft that put a pall over yeah. Yeah. everything immediately and then all of a sudden the cardinals trade out from Will Anderson at number 3 down to 12 what they got in return I thought at the time was okay I didn't think it was great I didn't think it was bad I just thought it was okay what they did but the Paul was still holding <laughs> yeah. the draft and then they moved back up from number 12 to number 6 they got the best offensive lineman in the draft and Paris Johnson Jr they they got him at number 6 And they collected a first and a third next year and another pick this year. I mean, it was a a stroke of mastership from Monty Ossenfort that I just... I don't think anybody expects from a first-time GM. but it, it, Does it show you the kind of creativity in that position that he can bring to it? Yes, it does. It, the first thing I thought of was Bill Belichick. This is, he's been in the New England Patriots yeah. system for a long, long time, 15 years. That's the first thing I thought of. Trade back, collect a bivvy of picks, use those picks to trade back up, get a great football player, and you still have excess. Yeah, to me, it was Brilliant. And not only that, it was also the Tennessee Titans, which he has been with sure. the last few years, of course, the Tennessee Titans. Because the Titans value the line of scrimmage more than any other team, I think, in the NFL. And they prove it with their draft picks. That's what they did. They took an offensive tackle, an offensive lineman, a butt gut that was going to come in here and change everything. We'll see. Right. He's got to prove it. But I love the, the um psychology behind it.
0: So what does it say to you about this kid being such a solid guard in college football, moving to the tackle position, and being an all-out stud at the tackle
1: position? That versatility, what does that mean to you? This is brilliant right here. It really is. First of all, you're talking about a a guy in Paris Johnson Jr. who is really, really smart. What a human being to begin with. That's that's number one in how smart he is. And oh, by the way, if you stick a mouth guard in him, he can actually play some seriously Good football as well, and I, I love that pick, Paris Johnson. I expect huge things out of this guy.
0: When you, uh, when you, can you explain to the people that don't necessarily understand? Because for the casual observer, yeah. when you watch the line of scrimmage, it's it's just a scrum. It's yes. just a, But the difference between a guard play and a tackle play, and the athleticism and the intellect
1: it takes to do both. Yes. Um. First of all, he, he tackles are at a premium in the National Football League. Tackles are at a premium because they play against edge rushers edge rushers get to the quarterback most more times than interior pass rushers unless you're Aaron Donald edge guys are your best pass rushers they get to the quarterback so you need tackles you need tackles i i know certain scouts and general managers that won't draft anybody but tackles they'll make them guards they'll make some of them centers right. as a way but they, they as in effect but they they draft tackles, Brew, and then they'll move him inside. This is brilliant because they've got Kelvin Beecham as a right tackle. they got D.J. Humphreys as the left tackle right now. Two very good tackles. Now they'll take this kid, Paris Johnson, they'll stick him at guard for the first couple of years, let him have at it, and then they'll kick him out to the tackle. It's, it's something that I think is beautiful for Paris Johnson Jr. to actually cut his teeth that way, to actually do it at guard, because there's not as much an emphasis on guard as there is tackle on tackle you're out on the edge by yourself with a with a guard you're covered to your left and to your right, you're covered.
0: Is there something to be said here, and I'm simplifying this to my skill level, that you're taking a guy that's got the low center of gravity, move the pile uh, skill set of a guard, but also has the footwork to get outside on a edge rusher. He's kind of the complete package of both. Yeah, he
1: is. He's a guy who could play tackle right now. You could move him out to tackle right now. From day one in his rookie year, you could move him out to tackle right now. He's probably going to have some lumps. There's no doubt about it. He's going to be cutting his teeth out there, but you could do it from day one and not even bat an ice. The best, in my opinion, the best offensive lineman in the draft, we'll see.
0: And All right, so then the last thing about this, this kid as a player, uh, to me, a lot
1: of it he is— He speaks Mandarin. Right. <laughs> and he, doesn't he speak Mandarin got, and another one? Yes, he's, got lang- another. he's Portuguese, he's, he's, right? Yes. You see, he speaks three different languages. <laughs>
0: okay, sold. And there was an element of humility in the interview yeah. that whether he was coached to say it that way or not, it doesn't matter. But he seemed to have the mindset in,
1: in saying, I just want to go to work. I'm going to give you the best I have every day. Listen, the kid's already got a foundation. He's already got a foundation in helping people, helping others. Yep. When you are thinking that way, when you're in college. I don't know about you, yeah. but that says a lot about him and his humility.
0: And when you think about it, uh, the reason why I love the game of football is because of the team aspect. You have to have an individual success for the betterment of the team. And that's kind of the way this kid is, kind of looks like he's lived his life, that he is a guy that is always looking out to make sure he's doing his best to help other people. Absolutely right. And I, isn't
1: that what you need? Yes, you 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 want that. Yeah, somebody that is a leader. Somebody, somebody that is a leader, and you know this, Brew, you're is a servant and that he's got a servant's heart. And this is what I love. He's got a servant's heart until he actually gets between the white lines and he starts playing because then he wants to drive you into the (laughs) ground and climb you when you're on the ground. Shake your hand after the game. (laughs) So I'm just saying. So the last
0: question is, what message does this send to Kyler Murray about the future for him and what they're thinking about with Kyler
1: Murray? Yeah, there's no doubt. This is a, Kyler, we need to protect you. That's what we need to do. We need to protect... Protect you. They're going to continue to build this team around the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. This is what I love because that's where the meat grinder is. When you go tackle to tackle inside, that's bloody nose area on the football field. That's where they're going to build this thing. It tells Kyler, we know we need to protect you. Ron, I appreciate it, man. Every day, I appreciate it. But after the night you had last night, thanks for coming in. No way. I love this brew. Uh, Anytime, buddy. Thanks,
0: Wolf. All right, that's Ron Wolfley from Arizona Sports. Coming up in a moment, we are going to to talk about the Bible-hiding story at the State Capitol. It's all coming up in just a few moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And hey, thanks for being here. Uh, A little bit of a uh, history lesson, so to speak. Uh, Here's the headline from AZ Central. And now, again, they're continuing this story, and I love talking about it, so we're going to keep going down this road. After the Bible-hiding brouhaha, not my word, theirs, but a good one, some wonder why a religious text in a capital lounge. Um, Only people that are ignorant. And I don't mean that as an insult. Again, ignorance. Um, And this is written by Ray Stern over at the Arizona Republic. The Arizona Constitution's preamble states that people are grateful to Almighty God, God for our liberties. And the state motto is ditat deus, which means God enriches. So we as a state and as a nation have been a theistic nation. Now, there's there are three kinds of countries. There are theistic nations like ours that believe in a creator. There are atheistic nations that do not. They are dark as far as faith is concerned, China, Russia. And then there are theocracies like Iran, nations that are run by a religious book. The Ayatollahs run the government in Iran. They have a government. But the Ayatollahs are called the supreme leaders. Those are the three different kind of nations in the world. So this – what happened with these Bibles being hidden in the lounge um, has store, has now started a uh, – there are some atheist groups or agnostic groups that are questioning this. And then they want to know why there's not a Quran and why there isn't a copy of the Torah. Well, because nobody put them in there. Nobody put them in there. And I had somebody that I, I was having a conversation with the other day say, they founding fathers absolutely wanted religion out, and that's just not true. It isn't true. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go a little further than I have before. I told you about what's happened inside the U.S. Capitol building. You know that Jefferson ordered at one time that Jefferson ordered that they have church services in the Capitol building, saying that if we are going to legislate together, we should worship together. They actually held church services in the U.S. Capitol building. Now, that doesn't mean. That they were choosing Christianity over anything else, but they did say that people were allowed to worship inside the Capitol building. Um, we do know do, do you know that every state has two statues in what used to be Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol, but now they are scattered throughout the Capitol building? Every state gives two statues. There is a, a, a Pastor John Peter Gabriel. Mühlenberg you may know the name you may not pastor Mühlenberg was living in Virginia and he was a pastor of a church and he was famous for clo- during a Sunday sermon quoting Ecclesiastes you know there is a season for all you know a time for all seasons of everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven and the uh, this is Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 through 8 and at the end it says there is a time to love a time to hate a time for war and a time for peace and he is uh, known to have taken off the priestly robes and underneath wearing a soldier's uniform, calling up the Virginia regiment. And that was part of it. he is one of the statues in Statuary Hall inside the Capitol, taking off that priestly robe. And uh, and the other thing is the state of Arizona. One of them is Barry Goldwater. and Barry Goldwater statue is in Statuary Hall. But there is also um, a preacher whose last name is Kino. Who was a missionary in Arizona, a missionary to the Pima, the Pima tribe, and is one of the two statues given from Arizona located in the Capitol Visitor Center is the statue of a monk or a priest from Arizona in Statuary Hall. So the idea that we wanted to sanitize religion from our government since our foundation is a false narrative that is so easily disproven, even like by a dunce like me. The idea that you're going to silence people of faith is absurd, and the idea that people of faith can't practice their faith inside the Capitol Lounge by having a Bible there or a Koran there or a Torah there or any other religious book is another absurdity. And it's one that we have to stay away from. And I just hope, I just hope that the the ignorance goes away and we just allow people to speak freely. The idea that you're going to question now that there were Bibles inside the Capitol Lounge that have been there for decades and no one's been injured. Now all of a sudden someone's going to want them removed. If anybody removes those books, they are out of their minds. Absolutely, unequivocally wrong and out of their minds. And uh, I'm not trying to push religion on anyone. But don't push mine out. Don't push any faith out. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Secularizing our government is not what was ever intended. I've got an interesting conversation coming up. I'm excited about this. Chief patrol agent from the Tucson sector of the Border Patrol, John Modlin, is going to join us. We are going to talk about the potential of Title 42 ending, how prepared are we, and what happens next. It happens next.